Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. So good to be here with you. If you're a first-time guest, welcome to Harvest. My name is Mike, and now I'm going to bring the Bible to you. Mark chapter 2, 23, 28. Why waste time? If you have your Bible, open it up. It could be an electronic Bible, a paper Bible. You may even have memorized the Bible, and you're turning the pages in your mind. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 and 28. How many of you have memorized the entire Bible? No, no one? Mark chapter 2, verse 23 to 28. We ready? I'm ready. Verse 23. One Sabbath. One Sabbath. Saturday for the Jews. He was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? This is an interesting thing, because in western Pennsylvania, there's a lot of farmers. And if you were to just start walking through their fields with a bunch of guys and just picking the corn, probably a farmer would ask you a similar question. Why are you guys doing what's not lawful? And he wouldn't care what day of the week it was. But the issue here wasn't the law of picking necessarily. In fact, The uh, Jewish law said that if you were passing through someone else's field and you were hungry, you could pick the grains of wheat and, and, or grains of whatever, I don't even know what grain it was, and eat it as you went if you're hungry. Um, Which you couldn't, you couldn't uh, store it, you couldn't harvest it, you couldn't take a bag full, but if you wanted to eat what you picked up, you could do that. So imagine walking through sweet corn and you're hungry, so you just grab one. That was the legal part. The issue for the Pharisees, who were the priests, was that it was done on a Sabbath day, which is a day of rest, and they considered that picking of the corn harvesting. Now, the Bible didn't say that that was harvesting and therefore work, um, but the Pharisees made their own rules to help people, and really they thought to help people, well, we can define work for them. And they defined what they were doing as work and, and therefore wrong. So they said to Jesus, why are they doing what is wrong? And, uh, and then that ensues this conversation. And Jesus is not going to change their mind. As we'll see this week and next week, um, the Sabbath issue is, uh, becomes for them a wedge issue. Something which they can find Jesus guilty of wrongdoing, they think. Um, so, uh, kind of like Adam Schiff, right? <laughs> just, sorry, contemporary humor there. Just contemporary humor. If you didn't get it, it wasn't for you. It was for the next person. Um, so, Jesus says to them, he does answer them. Jesus doesn't ever ignore the Pharisees, which I think is impressive. He doesn't hate them. They hate him. He doesn't hate them. He loves them. And he wants them to know the truth. And there are thousands of them, by the way, many Pharisees, and many of them will come to know Jesus as Savior uh, during his time and after his time. But for the most part, as a group, as a whole, they opposed Jesus, but he still took the patience to teach them. So he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, 
and how he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. He's saying, have you never read 1 Samuel chapter 21? Right? We went through 1 Samuel this, we finished it this year, so you guys, I don't know if you remember that, but it wasn't that long ago for us to have read that. He goes, have you never read 1 Samuel 21? When um, Dave, what David did was he found, the issue for David was he went to the priest and he was hungry, his men were hungry, and uh, he, he said to the priest, look, I know the only food you have is this holy bread used for worship, but we're hungry and I'm the king, so can I have it? And the priest said, sure, you can have it. Um, so David found food for himself and his guys that required the priest to set aside the ceremonial law. Follow? Right? Because it's not common sense that you let the king starve because you have a ceremonial law. And so Jesus is is paralleling himself with David and his men, which, by the way, the Pharisees would have thought as arrogant or they wouldn't have liked that. He's saying, well, if David, the important guy, can have ceremonial law set aside so his guys can eat, the implication is, how come I can't have my guys set aside your laws so they can eat? They're hungry too. Um, the Pharisees are being too narrow in their, in their application of the law. Jesus is not in favor of law breaking. He never broke a single law of the Old Testament. Um, but the Pharisees, they were very stringent. And, and Jesus was showing that to him. This conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus is going to go on this week and next week. Um, but right now, it's going to lead to two verses that are absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> if you can put yourself in the moment and, and consider how they would come across to the Pharisees and the people listening. And so the rest of our message is, is just going to be about Jesus' summary answer, which which is a principle he puts out for them, and some truths. And it's in verse 27 and 28. Here's what he says to them. After he gives them the example of David, he said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is new information, by the way. The Bible, he's not quoting an Old Testament verse here. He's giving them some new data to chew on. Then he says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Each of these verses deserves close attention. So let's take them in order. Verse 27 first. That's the Sabbath was made for man, Jesus said, not man for the Sabbath. Um, you guys are worried about these guys because they're eating on Saturday um, or they're, they're, they're harvesting. In your opinion, they're harvesting, not in mine, he would have said, but uh, they're working, they're breaking the law. But um, you are acting like they're here to serve the seventh day of the week. When the seventh day of the week is given to them to serve them. Just uh, uh, three observations about verse 27. One, the Sabbath stands out among the Ten Commandments because of its function. Uh, There are people today who who trip over the Sabbath, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for example, and teach that you're sinning if you do not rest on Saturdays and worship on Saturdays as a special day, that you're sinning because it's in the tenth, ten, ten Commandments. But what they're missing, Jesus is pointing out to them. He's saying, look, the function of the Sabbath is to serve the man. 
of what of the other Ten Commandments is that said? Right? Does, does the Bible say, well, God was made for your benefit, so worship him. Does it say that? You can answer. No. All the answers to these questions are going to be no, okay? <laughs> so you know. You know how to get this test right. Did God say honesty was invented to benefit mankind? Did he say that? No. no. So thou shalt not steal wasn't made for the benefit of mankind. It's just true. Honesty matters. Uh, violently slaying other humans didn't become wrong for the benefit of mankind. Um, the other nine commandments are, are just right, wrong, based on the character of God. The Sabbath is more arbitrary, and it's made, Jesus says, with a function. Like I said, some people trip over this, but what they're tripping over is the church. Because in the very first century, the church switched the day. The leaders of the first church switched the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And they're Jews. Why did they do that? Um, and, and then they changed, they started calling it something called the Lord's Day. Instead of, <laughs> they called Sunday the Lord's Day, first day of the week. Um, Sabbath, uh, the argument would be, from a Seventh-day Baptist or a Seventh-day Adventist or anyone who falls into this error, is they would say, uh, Sabbath must be on Saturday, to which we should ask why. The word Sabbath doesn't mean Saturday. <laughs> Saturday is from Saturn, some, what is that, Greek or Roman god, <laughs> later a planet. Um, if you're going to rest one day of seven, why does it have to be Saturday? Why couldn't Tuesday? They'd say, well, Tuesday couldn't be the Sabbath. Can't be the seventh day. Well, it is if you start counting on Wednesday. What's the difference? The issue is one in seven. Resting on one day is as good as resting on another day. But um, Jesus and the New Testament, though, challenge this. We see Jesus here. Look what the Hebrews writer said. And this sheds a lot of light on why God put, one of the reasons why God put the Sabbath into our law, why he made it important. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 to 4. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. What he's saying is the promise of entering his rest. He's using the Sabbath or the Sabbath rest, and you can go back and read this in context to see that for yourself, to mean salvation. So just like last week when we learned um, that, that uh, festivals and, and, and ceremonial laws were a shadow of the Christ and not the substance, in the same way the Sabbath is a shadow of what? Salvation itself. When you come to know Christ, you've entered into the rest, the Sabbath of God. You no longer have to work. We're saved by grace through faith, not through works. I am in the Sabbath, therefore, every day, according to Hebrews 4. While the promise stands of entering his rest, he's not saying of entering into Saturday. All you've got to do to enter into Saturday is survive Friday. He says, for, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who... 
who have believed enter that rest. Faith enters you into an eternal Sabbath, is what he's saying. For as he said, spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So the Hebrew writer is making this argument. If you try to enter by works, you're not going to do it. But by faith, you enter into the rest of God. So that it's not that the Sabbath day isn't important for humans in the rhythm of their life, but he is saying it has a bigger picture, the Sabbath rest. But that's not the, the, the only place. In Colossians, the New Testament says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. And like we saw last week, it says, These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that's a shadow. The real thing is the, is the salvation. Which would you rather have? A close observation of a Jewish seventh day or be saved? <laughs> well, which would you rather have? A stake or the light shining a shadow on your placemat of a stake? Well, you'd rather have the stake, as we talked about last week. And if you weren't here, that's what we talked about last week. Now, some people then could, could counter and say, well, if that's what the Bible says, then why should we observe a day of rest at all? Why should Christians, um, and why did they do that from the very start? Why didn't Christians, if this was what the first Christians taught, why didn't they just abolish weekly worship services? Um, there's two very obvious reasons, I think. One is Sabbath is a gift, not a punishment. It, to take a day off from labor to rest is a gift from God. God did not commission a 40-hour, five-day work week. He commissioned a six-day work week. Now, there's, you can't work all the time for six days. You've got to rest. You've got to sleep. You've got to do a little socializing. You've got to eat. You've got to play. But for the most part, you've got six days to get all your work done. And God says, but I'll tell you what, you can have one guilt-free day where you don't do anything. Um, and so it's a gift, not a burden. And think about this. We're made by God. He knows best how this emotional, uh, psychological, spiritual, physical machine works. And it works best if you take one full day without the stress of work. And so that's a good reason for Sabbath, right? The other is uh, obvious, I think. We are called the church. The church means assembly. Um, We are to assemble. And the first church, being Jews, historically, were in the habit of assembling once a week at synagogue, they simply kept the habit. Just moved it to Sunday because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. So being called the assembly, you cannot be the church if you never gather together. How often should you gather together? Well, the Bible doesn't restrict it, so we could gather every day. Problem there is, none of us will make a living. We'll start needing our own show bread or something to eat because we'll starve to death. So you have to work. But at least once a week, we should assemble Um, This is the example of the first apostles. We are a tribe, a nation, and time together, you know, um, it shouldn't be a burden. I look forward to church. Sure, there's times I don't feel like it, but normally I know why you don't feel like it because you don't feel like doing something you know you should do and will feel better because you did it. Sometimes I don't feel like taking a bath, you know, sometimes I don't feel like going out to eat, things that are normally pleasurable. Um, but most of the time, I'm right there with David who said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Um, 
we, we get to be together and we get to worship a, a, our great God and turn our mind away from just all the small stuff and everything is small compared to our God and turn it back onto God and kind of get reset because seven hard days can make one week. Um, second observation here, this one you might think is odd, but it, it needs to be pointed out whenever we can and I don't point it out enough, but the language of the Bible is neither oppressive nor wrong in any culture at any time. The reason I say that is because it says the Sabbath was made for man. And if, if Jesus said that in a university setting today, he'd be corrected. Someone would say, that's sexist. You cannot say Sabbath is made for man. Isn't it made for women? And he'd have to say, well, men and women. And then there'd be a transgender person said, and what about me? <laughs> and and, and why, why is this? For six decades, there has been a war on men, the family, childbearing, child-rearing, and what is considered patriarchy. Male hierarchies where men lead in any way based on their sex. And the war has been waged by academia, and it, go, it goes into society. And one of the main places the war is waged is language. Now, I'm 55, and I've gotten to see all of it. I got to see the whole change myself. It all happened in my lifetime. Uh, some of you grew up with this, and you don't know what I'm talking about. And you don't see why it's a big deal. And I get that. But let me just give you quickly an overview. There was a day when we had firemen, and we had mailman. And we had the chairman of the board. Um, these were, and words like that were seen to be oppressive to women. To use the word is to oppress women. Now, I don't believe that. I think that's stupid. But that's what was said. If you say fireman, you're oppressing women. So we changed it to, and you couldn't, so you might say, well, let's say firewoman. Or male woman. Or male. But then it was said, no, it's sexist to notice in your language, either sex, it's wrong. So we had to get rid of words like stewardess, actress, waitress, because even though they're not oppressive, you're assuming that women do those jobs, or at least you've let yourself, you can say steward, stewardess, actor, actress, no more. If you watch the Academy Awards, it's best female actor in a leading role. And it used to be best actress. Well, you can't have that because that reflects a patriarchy of time past when women are oppressed. This is the convoluted, foolish, stupid, petty, PC thinking that, that if you're 55 years old, you watch and go, what is happening? Acknowledging a person's sex at all. So, so we don't have stewardesses. We have flight attendants and actors. We don't have waiters and waitresses. We have servers um, we don't have male men and male women. We have firefighters. I actually think firefighter is an improvement because it's a cooler name. That's fine with me. I don't care. I, I think it doesn't work with male men. Say male fighters. <laughs> All kinds of confusion there. That probably is the feminist. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, even the word women is rejected. Uh, some of you may not know this, but go to college and you'll see there are people who will spell the word women with two Y's instead of an O and an E, because the word men is, is, is in there. Um, the generic use of the masculine pronoun he 
when you don't know whether something's a he or a she, has got to go. Um, just recently, um, Starbucks did a training. I know this because I know people who work at Starbucks. And, and you, should, you can never use the word Latina or Latino, which is proper Spanish, by the way. You have to say, no kidding, Latinx, which sounds like a Kleenex. Because the last thing you want to do is have someone of Latino, Latinx origin, have anyone know whether they're a man or a woman, because that would be somehow oppressive. Um, so to say mankind is out, you must say humankind. Um, this, this is real, right? I'm not, I'm not picking on something. I'm not trying to be mean or difficult. There's a, there's a philo- phil- philosophical battle going on, and the world is losing it, and the church often goes with it, and where it really matters is the Bible. It matters with the Bible. The Bible presents a patriarchal God, and there are Christians getting rid of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit to replace it with Creator, Comforter, Sustainer, Creator, Sustainer, Comforter, or something like that. And, and there are people who, want, who retranslate the Bible to make sure that the language can be as neutralized as possible. Taking singular sentences and making them plural when has to be. Now, if we take a high view of the Bible, and we do, Jesus said that not one cross T or dotted I, not jot or tittle, uh, will ever be done away with, then we have to assume that if God used what we could call masculine, I don't know, I don't want to use dominant language because I don't want to use the other side's language. I don't think it's dominant, but... But language that looks to patriarchy, calling God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instead of the God of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, or uses the word man generically for mankind, humanity, um, then we have to either assume the language itself is sinful, like our culture tells it as it is, or God capitulated to sinful language. In other words, he knew it was bad language. He did it anyway, which I don't think we can accept. If this is the word of God, we must accept it as written and as, and, and, and by the way, that's why Bible translations matter. And if, if you have an ESV, you have a very good translation. If you have a New American Standard, you probably have the best Greek translation into English still that you can get. If you have the latest NIV, you have a eh, 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 and I'm sorry because it's very popular, but it's just not that good of a translation when it comes to these things, nor is New Living. Um, but in any case... Um, here, Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man. I'm sure there's translators who wanted to change that, but they couldn't find a way to do it. He says, in the singular, man, and the word in Greek means, can only be translated man. Um, in Hebrew, the first time uh, Adam and Eve are described, the Hebrew term is ish for Adam and isha for Eve. You can see that isha is a derivative of the word ish, just like women is a derivative of the word men. Now you can either, ladies, you can get insulted by that if you want. I think the Bible makes it clear that the two equally share the image of God. The two are equal in value before God. You are equally free before God. You have all the equality you could ask for, but God does not diminish the differentiation between male and female or that the differentiation makes a difference. It does. We are not the same. We are different. And the language 
reflects that difference in the Bible. Therefore, we should oppose people who want to mess up Bible translations, and there are many, and we shouldn't be ashamed of using language like this. The Bible should be translated accurately. Therefore, male-dominated language cannot be immoral. just can't be, no matter what your culture tells you. Um, and it must be preserved in the text. This is more than a matter of style or preference. It's about the underlying philosophy. Postmodernism, feminism, and all the other isms are at war with Christianity. They are at war with the idea of family. They do not like the idea of male and female being the foundation stones of family. They do not like the idea that that puts women in the place where they have the burden of having children. I don't think it's the burden. That's the way they'd put it. And that, that they think somehow that's how men trap women and, and enslave them because they use this system which is oppressive to women that God invented for our flourishing. That's the philosophical thing that's under this. And um, so when it says a Sabbath is made for man, it means men, women, and little boys and little girls. Even little boys and little girls who are foolishly taught by abusive parents that they can choose their gender. It even means them too. The Sabbath was made for them and for all of us. Um, Okay. After that cultural application being done, a third observation is that the Pharisees' understandings of religious ritual needed to be adjusted. You notice Jesus didn't just deal with Sabbath. He dealt with religious ritual. Um, he said, look, the showbread can be eaten if the king is starving, and the corn, or whatever it was, I don't think it was corn, can be picked if the people need to eat on a Saturday. He was saying, look, the religious ritual and tradition are not to be used as a means of making people holy. This is counterintuitive to the way all of us humans think. We think if I do religious things, it makes me holy. If I do something like this, I put water on me, I go to church, I sing a song, I'm becoming more holy. Jesus turns that upside down and says, no, no, those things are for your benefit. They're there to serve you. Whether you're holy or not is a whole other issue. So observing the Sabbath, he's saying, won't make you holy, but it'll make you (laughs) well-rested. He's saying, God gave it to you. Jesus' correction is that if, if if a religious ritual is to have any value, it must benefit the faithful worshiper. How could we apply that today? That's not what this sermon is necessarily about. But you can think about that. It doesn't matter what time on Sunday we gather or Friday or Sunday night. It doesn't matter how long the services are. I mean, we can make those decisions. Um, The way of taking communion, um, baptizing inside a building or outside of a building, reading the Bible, standing up or sitting down. Nothing wrong. Some churches, everyone stands up and reads the Bible together at the beginning of every sermon. Is that good, bad, or indifferent? It's neither good nor bad. It's a religious ritual. If it serves the worshiper, it's good. If it... But it won't make the worshiper more holy. You can do it either way. If singing from a hymnal, is that, is that, does that make you more holy? Absolutely not. But if it serves the worshiper, there's fine, you're free to do it. And this is kind of how Jesus teaches us to look at the world. The Sabbath is made for man, but God didn't make man just because he needed to enslave us to one day of the week or any other religious ritual. All right, that's verse 27. Verse 28 
Shouldn't take as long, but it's even more remarkable. First, he turned their Sabbath upside down. By the way, one thing that Mark is not reflecting, but if you read all the Gospels, uh, you'll see they were enraged by the things he was doing. And when it comes to this, these early controversies over the Sabbath, their heads were exploding. Boom! Just popping open with rage and anger. The Pharisees, when Jesus said stuff like, hey, what the heck? Da- what the heaven? I don't know, whichever he'd say. David, <laughs> David took the bread. My guys can take the grain. Sabbath wasn't made... Men weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for men. Their heads are exploding. They're hating them. He's not winning them over, as we will see next week. But (laughs) he makes it worse here when he says this. This is mind-blowing. And and to capture that, just... How how could you you capture this? You kind of have to imagine you live in their world, and the priests who are in charge of everything, because they're the experts on the law... And they're there to help the people follow God. Um, <laughs> they're the ones who know right from wrong. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so Jesus looks the Pharisees in the eyes and say, so, because of what I said about David and all that, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, these guys, <laughs> it's, I, can't even, I can't even find anything comparable with it. I mean, you just march right up to the, to the leaders and say, and they say, do you get to make the rules? Well, since I'm Lord of the Sabbath, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a radical thing to say. <laughs> I am Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath will be whatever I say it is. That's the implication of what he called himself. No wonder their heads exploded. There's only two choices for them. Either believe that, making this guy Messiah, the Christ, or kill him. There's not a third choice for these leaders. He is a threat to their entire system. (laughs) He is an unschooled Galilean standing before them, the well-educated, well-respected authoritarian priests, and saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) The Pharisees say, no, we are the authorities of what the law says. You're saying, you are Lord over that. You're you're Lord over one-seventh of the week? It's like Jesus saying, yeah, I'll take over Sabbath management. How about that? I'm going to take that off your shoulders. Why don't you guys take the day off? It's just, it's just a crazy statement. But it's even crazier as you look closer at it. <laughs> um, why? Because if you look, look again at the uh, exact words. So the Son of Man is Lord, and then there's this word, even of the Sabbath. So in preparation for this, I looked that up. I popped open. Don't have to open books anymore. I popped open the word on my Greek translator and said, is the word even in there? What, is this translated correctly? And guess what? It's in there. In fact, the exact, and by the way, the ESV is very good translation of this Greek. Um, the literal 
uh, order of the words, it would go like this. So the Lord is the Son of Man, even of the Sabbath. Now the word I'm following is the word even. <laughs> the, the Lord is the Son of Man. He's, re- he's the second time and he's referred to himself that way. Right? He's saying the Lord, which for them means God. The Lord is the Son of Man. And then he puts, he doesn't say of the Sabbath. He says even of the Sabbath. Even? <laughs> even? Well, what does that mean? Well, the implication is he's Lord of everything and the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the, he's not just the Lord of one-seventh. We got to get this in our map before I take off on it and enjoy it too much. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is Lord of everything. That includes the Sabbath. He makes the rules. He makes the Sabbath rule. I make the rules. I wrote the Bible on the Sabbath, but I wrote all the rules. He's king of all things. He makes the rules for Sabbath, but he's Lord over everything else too. So that you know the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That too. (laughs) Listen, in the very first sermon after the Holy Spirit came down and indwelled the Christians at Pentecost... The, the climax of that sermon is when Peter says the following in Acts 2, 29 to 36. Brothers, and he's talking to unbelieving Jewish brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Brothers, David, who's dead, who you all believe in, was writing about the resurrection of the Christ. (laughs) That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up from the dead, saying, Of that, we're all witnesses. He's like, all of us people standing here speaking in tongues, 120 or so of us, we all saw him. We touched him. Some of us even ate broiled fish with him. He cooked on the beach for us. We have all seen him, just like David said. He's not dead. (laughs) Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, He has ascended into heaven and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Father gives Holy Spirit to the Son and he pours it out on us. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David David didn't ascend to heaven, did he? When he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It was Jesus he was talking about. Then he says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. After Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and then he poured out the Holy Spirit because God took the man Christ Jesus, who also happens to be God, and he made him Lord of all. Not just one-seventh. Not just the Sabbath, every moment. 
So what Peter said to the Jews was, the guy you killed, he happened to be the Lord. And so they're freaked, right? They're freaked out. They're scared now because they're seeing the power of the Holy Spirit because at that moment in history, the Holy Spirit fell down. People were speaking in other languages. Wild things were happening. And, and then they're, they're realizing that if what Peter says is true, they were on the wrong side of the question. When Jesus said, I am Lord of all, they went the wrong direction. And they, it, it cut them to the quick. And they said, Peter, what should we do? And he said, repent and believe the gospel. And so should you, by the way. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, your sin sent him to the cross. It's time for you to repent and follow him. But, but I want us all, especially you who follow him, to realize he is not just the Lord of one day of the week. I was in a conversation with a man I met for the first time today, and I really enjoyed talking to him. And since I went on the men's retreat, learned to tell my story, I told him a bit of my story, and he told me a bit of his story. And we both kind of had the same story before I came to know Christ, just like him. Sunday was just a thing you did, thinking it'll make you better off. But God wasn't Lord of every day. (laughs) And is he your Lord seven days a week, 24 hours a day? 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, and I have no idea how many total minutes or seconds that is. You do the math. <laughs> you know, the, the, the idea, well, he's my Lord on Sundays. When I go to worship him, clean myself up. Well, what about Mondays? What about Tuesdays? What, what about every single waking moment? there's a beauty to him being the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of the dust mites flying in your windowsill. Some of you say, well, I don't have dust in my windowsill. He is the, he's the Lord of the clean air flying by your windowsill. He's the Lord of every molecule, every blade of grass. He's the Lord of every hair on your head. He's the Lord of everyone in your home. He's the Lord of every part of your body. He is the Lord of your emotions, of your soul, of your eyes, your ears, of your everything at every given moment. He's the Lord of all the world. Humans are either noticing or not, <laughs> submitting or not, but he's not just the Lord in, on Sunday for you. And for the Christian, the reason this dynamic can be beautiful is because he gives you the Holy Spirit and he says he is with you. When you get in a jam, do you ever feel like he's not here? Probably because before you were in a jam, you forgot he was Lord. You see, on the, it's good to know he's there when you're in a jam. So remember, he's there when you're not in a jam. He is Lord over every moment of your life. There is a discipline in the Christian life. that, And here's the application of the sermon, folks. Now, you may have learned other things and applied it in your head the way maybe the Holy Spirit's helped you see things that I don't know you were thinking. And you can apply it that way too. So whatever you think you need to do, do. But here's the way I'd encourage all of us. There's a, there's a discipline within the Christian life called practicing the presence of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, your hope isn't that everything goes right on this earth. Your 
It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians says. So the discipline is this, to go through your days reminding yourself at every juncture of your day that Jesus is with you. That's from the time your little feeties hit the floor or if you hit the snooze button 18 times. I never do that. I learned long ago it only makes life more painful and once you get married, there's two people going through this torture. (laughs) Just set it for the absolute last moment. But it doesn't matter. If you hit it 15 times, he's the Lord of the snooze button. He's the Lord of that moment. He's the Lord of your decision to do that. He is, till you go to eat and meet with people, he is the Lord of the words that are about to come out of your mouth. He's the Lord of your decisions. In other words, he's always in charge of you. Which means he's always there. Now, if you think he's going to kill you, this is a nightmare. (laughs) Right? So you have to have a proper outlook on Jesus. He says, the Bible says, the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. If you've got that, you've got faith. And you, you can understand that he's not here. You know, if, if he's there when I'm putting the jelly on my toast, it means I can thank him for the jelly. Since you're here with me, thanks. <laughs> if you're afraid of him, you're like, I do not deserve this jelly. I've lived like a sinner. What makes the difference? What? First, you, the first step is obviously you have to be a Christian. And by that, I don't mean go to church or whatever anyone in the world would call a Christian. I'm saying you have to meet Christ. You've got to step over the line. When, you know, you're, if you haven't stepped over the line for Christ, you're like one of the Pharisees. And I'm not saying that as an insult. But you're, you're, you're being told truths by him from the Bible. And you have two choices. You can either believe the Bible's true, believe what Jesus says is true, or not. If what he says is true, it's crazy. It's wild. If, think about this. There was a man who stood on the earth who men who gave their blood, who literally died saying, we saw him with our eyes. They were willing to die for it. Eyewitnesses told you that he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So that man existed. There's every reason to think he was there and he said things like, I am the Lord, you know, the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Who said things like, come to me all who are thirsty and, and, and uh, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He either did that or he didn't. He either rose from the grave or he didn't. But if he did say those things and if he did rise from the grave, and which I'm saying he did, you have to make a decision just like the Pharisees. If I believe that, I've got to live with some crazy implications that are going to turn my life upside down. And I'm not going to soften that. It's true. But it's good. It's one of those, all the other kids are jumping off the high dive and look like they're having fun. Try it kind of moment. (laughs) Do it. Or you go the other way. And say, well, if that's not true, this whole thing's a lie. And that Jesus character is, is, is a phantom, a myth, and a fool, and probably a demon for saying stupid, crazy things like he's the Lord of Saturday. 
which do you choose? So the first, first step, if you're going to practice the presence of Christ, is make that choice. I believe him. But then, Christian, you can't listen to the devil tell you how awful you are all the time. Your stinking thinking is messing up your joy. Your constant... I, you say, well, I was raised in an abusive household, and my dad always said I stink. Those two things could be true. I wish it hadn't happened. My question to you is, do you want to live in that thought pattern, or do you want to change it? Because now... The Father in heaven sent his Son to die for your sins, to purchase you, to tell you it's true, to save your soul, to live in you, and tell you you're beloved. That also happened to you. You can live thinking like a victim, or you can live thinking like a child of God. The application this week is every one of us go through the week practicing the presence of Jesus Christ every moment, realizing that he's on our side. That he likes you. He likes you. A lot of people don't like you in your life. I'm sorry. I'll assume they're wrong. But that's going to happen. But he likes you. And he likes you right now. Not when you get cool. Not when you lose weight. Not when you gain weight. Not when you get strong. Not when you get a boyfriend. Not when you get a girlfriend. Not when you make more money. Not when you have better discipline over your finances. He likes you right now. And he's with you every single moment. Satan hates this message. He wants me to make you feel guilty and defeated. And he doesn't want you to hear Never substitute religious ritual for an obedient life. But never give up the practice of realizing the closeness of your Savior. He is Lord of every moment. And He's with you at every moment. Which means in a way, everything's okay. We say, what if everything goes wrong? Then you die. So what? Then what happens when I die? Haven't you read the Bible? <laughs> You've been coming to church. You tell me. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. All those sorrows turn into glory. So what do you think about that application? Want to give that a try this week? Want to try practicing the presence of your Lord who is great, who's awesome, who's the best ever, and who loves you? And you say, but what about my sin? He says, I've already paid for that with my life and risen from the dead. Isn't that good homework? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.